Welcome to the Back to Basketball Podcast. Athletes, experts, trainers, and mindset coaches. Conversations that will change your perspective on your mind and body and its capabilities so that you can train and live pain-free and with purpose. Now, here's your host, Darcy Koss. So we are recording live. So welcome. We have Professor Stuart McGill. Uh, thank you so much uh, for coming on. Uh, and, uh, and discussing uh, the things that you know, which is the back uh, specifically. Um, thank you. Oh, well, thanks very much, Darcy. <laughs> uh, you know, so I, I'm, I just want to have these books off to the side here because they are yours. I just want to start by showing the one book here, which is probably the most useful of them all, is uh, The Back Mechanic. And I say that uh, mainly because I think it's, uh, it can apply to anyone who has any sort of back pain. And also the other one that I'm, I'm really just getting into here, uh, it's yours at the ultimate fitness. So, you know, being an athlete, uh, you know, these, these books here really helped me kind of uh, get over my, my pain. Um, something I just want to kind of start off with is uh, the idea of spine hygiene. So in reading the back mechanic, that was one of the things that stood out the most to me. Uh, you know, the things that lead to a lot of the back pain are the things that, that people take for granted, the little things, you know, people often say the little things matter the most. And in this case, spine hygiene speaks directly to that. You know, what can you tell us about spine hygiene and uh, maybe some of the practices people should uh, uh, take in their lives to, uh, you know, take spine hygiene into account? Well, I'll start with this little story. There was a very famous Czechoslovakian neurologist named Carol Levitt. And Carol's quote was, the job of the clinician is to teach the patient the cause of their pain. So the assessment will always reveal the cause of the pain or the pain pathway. There might be several factors. But pain isn't random. It's not non-specific back pain. That doesn't exist. That only means the person hasn't had a good assessment yet. So a good assessment will reveal uh, the cause with some precision. Now that, that sets up our conversation about spine hygiene. Many people think exercise will cure their back pain when they don't really know what the target of the exercise is yet. So every assessment know very precisely what the target is, but before you exercise, you've got to stop the cause. Now that's what spine hygiene is. So you can imagine if you had a sore toe because every day you stubbed your toe, you would lightly touch your toe and you would scream because it's so highly sensitized from a neural point of view. You can't exercise your toe, it hurts too much. So stop stubbing your toe and then build it back up again. But spine hygiene is how to stop stubbing your back, stop hammering your back. And uh, I'll give you an example. So let's do a, a, a very simple orthopedic test. We're going to sit in a chair, sit very tall, grab the seat pen, the part that you're sitting on, and pull up. And you'll pull up about 20 kilos. Uh, for if you have any American viewers, that's 44 pounds for our <laughs> But uh, nonetheless, uh, pull up. And if you're stacked tall and in that posture, and that doesn't cause your pain, then let's adjust posture. Let's slouch a little bit. And you may not even need to pull, but if the player then says, you know what, that's my thing. Uh, you've just proven that that particular posture caused their pain. Now let's watch them sit on the uh, sidelines uh, for basketball. So let's take the typical basketball work rest ratio. Uh, they might sit on the bench for 20 minutes to half an hour. 
And then their job is to get off the bench and box out Shaq O'Neal. And I've had player from a specific team whose job it was to box out Shaq O'Neal. So I know a little bit about this. <laughs> anyway, um, now in those days, we were watching him sit and he sat in the pain that he just showed us in the exam caused his uh, back pain. Now, do you think, it doesn't matter what his warm-up was or anything else, what shape do you think he was getting off the bench to box out Shaq? Terrible. Yeah. So spine hygiene would be coming up with a hack, a movement hack or a strategy to stop the cause. So in this case, we increased the height of his chair. We angled the seat pan forward, tilted the, the pelvis a little bit, and he was able to maintain a more upright posture so he could get off the stool and get into the game uh, using that example of spine hygiene so now he's prepared a to be a higher performer and b not trigger pain so it was a matter of building training capacity so we have uh, i don't i can't think of anyone in the nba at the moment but i can think of three players currently active in the nhl where they don't tie their own skates what we did say to them was the trainers are going to tie your skates because simply tying up their own skates made them more predisposed to having a pain trigger when they're skating on the ice for that game. Take that uh, out and they remain robust and resilient for the rest of the game. So we spine hygiene is a matter of 24-7 being an athlete and building training capacity. Stop picking the scab and uh, allow pain desensitization to take place. And it really is a foundational building block that sets up what the exercise program is going to look like that will address these deficits that you've identified. Target them, pick the best exercises, and uh, make it a non-issue. Absolutely. And I think I, I love the way you framed it around athletes. And I, I think I take it a step forward or, or I would say away from athletics and just everyday life, because if you're just a general sufferer, you're not a professional athlete, but you still play basketball on the weekend or you like to play on Wednesday nights with your friends. If the majority of your time is spent with your spine uh, in these compromised positions, whether it's you're tying your own shoes or it's the way you're sitting at home or the way you're sitting at the office, and then you go out and play play the sport you're probably likely going to have these these pain triggers if you already have back issues and so I think people uh you know listening to this need that's the one thing I started to understand and it was what started me down the path of like getting rid of the pain was what am I doing like outside of right before I play basketball or right before I train like what does my day look like how am I sitting at work how often am I sitting what's my what's my posture all these little things that uh you know that for me are now things that I constantly think about and uh so i love i just spine hygiene i want to start there because i think that if anyone who's struggling with back pain need to i think that's where they start they say well what 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 am i doing day to day like i almost check in with themselves and think about one of those causes because a lot of people just think it's like oh it's the workout i did that caused the pain but they're not considering all the factors that led up to that point it's interesting uh, i was asked to consult with an nba player uh, probably about two years ago now, who was one of the best three-point shooters in the game. And uh, it was so interesting that his on-court play was fabulous, moving well, brilliant. And then, you know, you get to know these people personally a little bit, and they uh, watch TV. 
he didn't realize that my assessment was still going on. And yeah, he didn't realize that it was that loss of discipline that was causing his on-court uh, compromising performance and his ongoing pain. Get off the lobby coach, sit in almost like an office chair. He's allowed to lean back because the hips weren't the issue. Open up the hips, lean back, and uh, watch the uh, telly that way. Uh, allowed him training capacity. So you're you're so right. And people think it's the game, it's doing the exercises, etc. But uh, it's the uh, 24/7 activities. In some cases, absolutely, I love it. Spine hygiene. I've been spreading the good word about spine hygiene now for quite some time. Uh, so, so you had mentioned a few times, uh, Professor McGill, about uh, some professional athletes. I know you mentioned some NHL players. Now, considering that it's the back, these people are making money with their bodies. I know you're not able to go out and start naming a list of people, um, but you have mentioned that you have worked with some NBA players and some professional basketball players. Um, are there any that you could name that have come out or maybe have endorsed you publicly in, in, in helping them? Um. I don't know how many have been public. Now, if, if there's been other sports, certainly uh, in MMA, for example, because they're not traded and they, they don't make quite as much money, but basketball is curious. So is hockey, so is NFL football. They make a lot of money and they're bought and sold and traded. So the players keep their compromises under wraps. And as you know, in the NBA, before a player is traded, uh, the team purchasing the player is allowed to bring their physicians and medical staff in to come and inspect the goods. Uh, and there's supposed to be a certain amount of trust in we're dealing, but it doesn't always take place. But the savvy player who is in a sport where they're traded, they very rarely will go public with uh, yeah. McGill. been to... Uh, you know, I, I could name some, some clinicians who are very well known for specific medical things uh, in certain sports that the players really say. So that, that's, a, that's a sport cultural thing. So no absolutely one to think of an NBA player during the So maybe can I, can I ask a question? So uh, I, I'm, I'm sure you're well aware of uh, who Steve Nash is. One of our one of Canada's greatest Canadian yeah. athletes. I, I've never seen. You've never seen. So when so I know that you had been doing some of your work early on when he was still playing, and I know he struggled with back pain. Now, has, was there any thought to ever say, "Hey, you know, let me reach out to him. I want to help this guy." Have you ever been in a situation like that, or maybe thought about it with with uh, Steve specifically? No, to Steve specifically. And when I was younger, I would. Uh, you know, if I was at a game with another player and I would say to another player, uh, I think I am seeing an issue here that I might be able to help you with. I learned to keep my mouth shut. Mm -hmm. um, a, they didn't know who I was. Or, you know, you could be at a gym somewhere and some guy comes up to you and says, oh, you're squatting wrong. Here, let me show you. That. You know, it's yeah. just, yeah. and it's that kind of uh, thing. And also, that player may very well have their team around them. And it's just, I've, I've learned it's the wrong 
approach and the wrong way to do things. So I, I, I get about 200 requests from around the world every day anyway. I <laughs> for more uh, business. But anyway, that, that's been my experience. Uh, no, I, I would uh, never approach as much as sometimes it breaks my heart. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and I, and I understand. I understand that you you used a great example of you know someone comes after you. Regardless, you don't know who they are, but they say, "Hey, you're doing something wrong," and you're like, "Who are you?" Now, taking that to the the professional sports world is a whole other issue with their teams, and like you said, they're very managed. I, I could give you some fantastic examples of this. There was a there's an NFL All Pro offensive tackle who, in his prime, mm. uh, and All Pro for several years played at well over 300 pounds. Uh, when he retired, he got down to just under 200 pounds. So just, you know, a six foot four lanky fella who moved well, who retired so successfully, he had all his health back. But of course, no one recognized him. And uh, I was out with him and uh, a, a trainer came up to him and said, oh, so what do you, did you play sport? And he looked you know, kind of like a tall, lanky dude. Did you play basketball? And he's just, uh, no, no, no. I, uh, it was from Texas. So, you know, even more of a gentleman. Yeah. And he said, no, I played a little football. And the trainer says to him, football? Aren't you kind of skinny? <laughs> this trainer lit into him. And, you know, this fella had so much grace, he didn't say anything. And, and I'm just shaking my head. You know, people are just so out of place sometimes but anyway there's a funny little anecdote I've seen yeah it. well it's it's funny because it kind of leads into my next question of the idea of people's opinions on what they should do with their back so you know i in my back pain journey i heard everything literally everything and i know you've probably you have the list of everything of people <laughs> been told to do this and do this and do this and i i already know the answer specifically that you know what Obviously, it's, you know, there isn't one solution necessarily. There are some key areas, but depending on what's causing your pain. But the question I did want to ask specifically is, you know, and, you, and in, the, in the back mechanic, you have a whole section on this, are, is back pain myths. Um, so I'm curious if you could talk about some of the more popular myths that you've heard that you feel that are at the top of the list that need to be debunked because they're actually potentially dangerous for people suffering from back pain. Yes. Okay, that, that's a nice introduction. Um, some myths are only implied and they sort of become uh, like a general knowledge or an urban myth. Uh, and then some are, you know, they're, they're just propagated by someone who has an axe to grind and they have a forum on, on Facebook and, and they develop a following. So, so myths. But, so let's just take a myth that I don't think it's anyone's fault. It's just a diagnosis, non-specific back pain. You have non-specific back pain. And this is such a myth, but it has enormous impact. Um, how can you treat non-specific leg pain? Would you even put up with the doctor telling me, oh, you've got non-specific leg pain. So what do I do? Am I burned? Am I fractured? Do I have cancer? Uh, do I have a musculoskeletal disorder? Do I have a torn ligament? What's, what's my non-specific leg pain? And yet we put up with this. Uh, culturally, uh, you've got non-specific back pain. All that that shows is the person hasn't seen the spine expert yet, 
and they've never had a thorough assessment that has given them a precise understanding of their opinion of whatever the causal pathway was. So that's the first myth. And the myth is addressed by getting a thorough assessment. So it disappears. You now have a very specific subcategory of pain because treating a non-specific entity with a non-specific treatment, you know what the this is dumb luck, maybe maybe you'll hit, hit it. So uh, that would be the uh, the first one. The next one is um, you take. So I don't get the first time back pain person. I get the difficult cases, the ones who've already been to twelve different clinicians and they've failed, or they've even been made worse. So they've been to the chiro, the physical therapist, the strength coach, the orthopedic surgeon, the cognitive behavioral psychologist, <laughs> they've, they've been down the gamut. And then they still aren't better. And someone says, well, the only thing left for you is surgery. Yes. Well, uh, when we studied surgery and, and how we did that was we, uh, when I started the experimental back pain clinic at the university, we followed up with every patient that we ever saw. Now, I don't know of another clinic that's ever done that, um, but we did. Now, it depends on how you ask the question, but if you ask the question this way, for those who are subcategorized, you've been to all of these professionals and the last option for you is surgery. If that's the category you fall into, if you do virtual surgery, the spine hygiene, rebuilding back core stiffness, appropriate mobility uh, in, in the hips and shoulders, start developing patterns of drop step and lateral shuffle, and in this case, getting back on the basketball court. In other words, training the things that the sport demands, very specifically. If you do that, 95% of those people who were told they needed surgery, avoided it, and in a two-year follow-up, we're glad that that's the decision they made. So I don't know if you were in that category or not. But there's a, a, another myth. But here's another myth in the same sort of category. Those dozen clinicians can't find the cause of your pain. It's still nonspecific. But then one of the clinicians tries their therapy. It might be spine decompression. It might be rubbing something. It might be doing a specific exercise. It might be doing a specific stretch, but you don't get better. And then the clinician says, and this is the travesty, the pain is in your head. You're magnifying your pain. And, all it, it, and, and these come from clinicians who never did a thorough assessment. Had they done that, they would have known it's not in the player's head. Now, they have very deep cognitive issues because you will too. Wouldn't you be frustrated? Your career is coming to an end. You're losing your marriage. You can't sleep with the torture of your pain. Of course, you're going to have psychological impact. But treat the cause. Get rid of the pain and the psychological distress and dissonance disappear. Anyway, so there's a yet another myth still coming from the same uh, cascade, shall we say, in the uh, medical system. Um, well, we, we could go uh, on and on, but there's a few myths, I guess that uh, are solved with a systematic treating the person as a real human. 
So I, I did like what you brought up about uh, if you do go see someone and they say you have non-specific back pain, what would you advise, or I guess I, I should rephrase the question, is there a specific type of uh, specialist that you would advise people to go to uh, that have already gone to see their specialist and they got the, hey, you have non-specific back pain, where should they go? Well, we've recognized this as an issue for years and I didn't do anything about it for a long time until uh, maybe uh, eight years ago, something like that. I said, well, we've got to take the thing by the horns here. Now, this may sound arrogant, I don't know, but I don't care anymore. Uh, we had to train our own because consider the limitations of the traditional medical system. You can choose a clinician, go and see them, and you're lucky to get a 10 minute assessment. When I started the back pain clinic at the university, we started with a two-hour assessment to listen to the story, recognizing patterns that would reveal some of the characteristics, subcategorizing them, and then we did provocative testing, and then we did neurological testing, biomechanical, physiological, psychological, etc., to hone in. So find that person who will spend two hours with you. They don't exist. So we created the uh, method certified clinicians. And if you go to our website, uh, you're in Surrey, BC. So there should be about three uh, in Southern uh, BC uh, as an example. Now, one of them is what we call a master clinician. It's the highest level. He's trained with me. Uh, I've worked with them and they've shown me that they can get the 20 non-specific back pain people come through the door, they are able to assess them and subcategorize them and be successful with hopefully 18 of those 20. So that's that was our uh, solution and I, I wish I had a better answer for you. Uh, but, but I don't. Yeah, no, I, I understand and I've seen, uh, you know, uh, just you know, uh, you had mentioned your website, backfitpro.com, I believe it is. Uh, and on there, uh, it'll direct you to uh, clinicians that have been trained in the McGill method uh, in your area, if I'm not mistaken. So definitely check out their website if you are someone who suffers with pain and had have been diagnosed with nonspecific back pain. Uh, you know, check, check out uh, and try to find someone who has been trained in the McGill method. Um, and, and you had, did mention as well, um, you know, uh, Professor McGill, that uh, there are uh, courses that you you offer uh, as well through the website um, to train uh, clinicians. So if there's someone out there, you're a physiotherapist, an athletic therapist, a chiropractor, and you do want to learn the McGill method, you can definitely learn uh, uh, and uh, register for some of those courses. Now, right now, being that there's the pandemic, are you offering online courses for that? Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Um, yeah, I spent the last 30 years uh, somewhere in the world every month and, and I'm tired of it. <laughs> so the, the, the pandemic uh, forced us uh, just three weeks ago, I think it was, we put the final course online. So those courses are now available online and for hands-on skill development, which of course was the great advantage of going to the live course, uh, they now get a full day that goes along with each course uh, with one of our uh, top instructors. There's only two of them that do the online, and then uh, they do a full day's hands on workshop online in small groups. I think there's only eight. Mm. Well, that, that, 
That's great. That's great. I was curious. Can you? Can you? Do you have to have uh, some uh, discipline uh, to to become a clinician? So, for example, do I need to be like what? What is the baseline? Is it an athletic therapist? Is it a physical therapist? What What would be the 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 credentials that you would have to have to at least uh, register for the course? Right. I understand. For the first level, to become a certified uh, clinician in the McGill method. Uh, you don't need a medical or, or uh, allied medical degree. So there are plenty of strength and conditioning coaches who hold that designation, but they do need to be a member of, uh, it might be ACSM or NASM or uh, uh, NAS, uh, what is it? Um, National Strength and Conditioning Association, who I just came up with before a couple of days ago. Um, anyway, so you have to be a member in good standing of, uh, if you're a trainer, for example, with uh, that uh, group or association. You have to take the three McGill level courses, which is the foundation, is the first one. It's a two day course. It's 20, uh, no, it's more than two days. It's 20 hours of online instruction. It is almost equivalent to a full term university course. The second one is the assessment, which is another, I believe, 16 hours of online instruction. And then the third one is enhancing performance. So uh, it's, uh, I think, also about 16 hours. And then there's a written uh, exam. Now that's online. And then our assessors, who are based in Vancouver, by the way, it's by the RED Corporation, they're at arm's length from us. They watch the uh, trainer with the client uh, doing a, a vaccine assessment uh, according to our uh, approach. And then they have to write a program and start coaching. So they wanted to see the coaching skills. So that's for the uh, certified designation. But for the very elite master clinicians, uh, we usually choose them from those who are doing well in the certified, and we invite them to come and train with me. Okay. And we see patients together, and they come and stay at our house, and uh, we, you know, we teach them how to read uh, any kind of radiological uh, image, how uh, to really become masterful in conducting the interview to extract things like what are the impediments that caused you to fail with all of the previous clinicians? What are you missing here? Uh, excellent coaching te techniques, etc. So that's the um, uh, steps, I suppose, in the requirements. Now, oh, also to become a master clinician, we do want a uh, uh, an allied medical degree like a physical therapy, osteopathy, chiropractic. Um, but having said that, we also have some elite strength and conditioning coaches who are absolutely fabulous. In fact, I'll give you an example of an SNC coach in London, England, Joel Boscovitz. Uh, he is absolutely masterful at reading MRI. And I would put him up against any radiologist in the world. He will pull out features that are pretty relevant for that individual that are always missed by the uh, conventional radiologist. So there you go. Uh, all I need is a person who, um, let me put it this way. How many car mechanics are there in North America? So let, let's just pick a, an example, say 20 or 30,000. Sure. Sure. But how many of those car mechanics can build a car to win Indy five years in a row? 
the hand that's the punishment the one who heals it in the bones good clinicians who get back to him better than the art in the science and got a some pain on the person's face yeah if, you know if, if you can't read that that brother you're in the wrong profession <laughs> I, and I, I think that's great because it's, you know, you do, you're saying essentially it's not limited to people who have certain credentials. Uh, it's more about their ability. Uh, and if you see someone that has that ability, then you're, you're more than happy to offer them the opportunity to potentially go and, and become a master clinician. So I love that. Uh, you're not putting that, uh, that ceiling on, uh, on the opportunity just because uh, they may not have certain, uh, you know, uh, certain you know, credentials. You know, you, uh, I, I love people, and every person has an expertise or gift. It's just maybe they haven't really brought it out yet. You take a criminal who knows who the next mark is. You take a criminal who knows by that person's gait pattern, and they're depressed. You can see it in the way that they walk. That's going to be my mark. Say you're a confidence expert. That person has such a gift. And can read and see that person. You've never been to school, you've only been to jail. Mm -hmm. yet, if you could harness that gift uh, yeah. in a positive way. So, do you see, I, uh, even though I'm a professor, uh, so much is learned from this event. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Yeah, I think it's great. I, I love the answer because essentially, you know, and I think that's kind of why you wrote the books you wrote as well, because you said, look, I don't think what's out there is, is of high enough quality. I don't think it's getting the job done. And you kind of said, okay, well, that's what can we do? So I, I love that. And, and again, it is open to, to anyone uh, who, uh, you know, has a desire, I guess, to, to help people with their back issues and, and to learn more. So definitely check out uh, BackFit Pro. Um, I, I kind of wanted to, you know, kind of shift a little bit away from that, but, um, and this is probably something that actually comes up a lot uh, in, in getting, uh, be becoming a, a McGill uh, a, a clinician is, is the role of, uh, you know, what an, a lay person uh, would, would call just the core area of the body, right? It was just made up of a whole bunch of areas. But can you kind of define, you know, briefly define what the core area of the body is, maybe some of the main areas? And then can you talk about its, its role uh, in protecting the spine or maybe causing some of the issues with the spine when it's, when it's not strong enough? Yeah. Would you mind if I answered in reverse? To be absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Okay, I'm going to reverse it. So let's talk about stability and what it is. And I'm, I'm going to give a, a very lay explanation, but there's an awful lot of science that we need <laughs> because there's, there's more than a handful of people in the world who've actually measured spine stability, and we were one of the laboratories in which we are able to do it. So it's not an easy thing to do. If I asked you, how stable is the bridge that crosses the sound there in, in Vancouver, a few engineers could tell you, but the average person could. So, um, three elements to stability. The first one is this. We live in a linkage. The body is a linkage. You need proximal core stability to unleash this eroticism. What do I mean by that? So I'm going to push you now. I'm, I'm clearing some space under the basket. I'm going to create a push. I'm going to use my bench press muscle, my pec major. Pec major crosses a unique articular joint, the shoulder distal to the shoulder 
neck major creates the arm flexion and the push. Fabulous, it's what I wanted. But proximal, that muscle also connects to my ribs. So when it contracts proximally, it bends my rib cage towards my shoulder. Now I've just collapsed and created an energy leak. An absolute robber of, the, of what I'm trying to achieve on the court. So using a bench press muscle to create arm push in a standing posture on the court is absolutely useless until I met the condition of proximal stability. So now I'm going to lock down my core. I'm going to stop motion. I'm going to arrest the uh, energy leak proximal to the ball and socket joint. So now 100%, if this is how it's stable, now 100% is directed and I've got uh, uh, excellent clearing of my space for the rebound, as an example. So the hips are exactly the same when I take off. Uh, well, let's take Michael Jordan, for example, the two-step jump. Uh, I don't think it will be a standing uh, vertical jump. Uh, it's going to be two steps. So one, two, step onto the heel, and then the hip explodes. The hip Gluteal hamstring extensors of the hip form a hammer. Boom! Now, you can't hammer a rope and expect the rope to move, but you can hammer a stone. So, with core stability and stiffness, that muscle hammers the stone and he flies. Now, if you have a wonky core, you're pushing rope, the core bends, you won't dock the basketball from the top of the feet. So, when we start getting players towards the end of their career, we create better hammers. And we create better stones. So there's a little bit of a wisdom that, that is very broad reaching in athletics uh, generally. The next part of course stability is we have a stack of oranges for a spine. It's a flexible rod. No kind of engineer that stack up a bunch of oranges and squeeze it and expect the oranges to stay um, because the oranges will collapse. So will the spine. So the spine is this wonderful structure that's a flexible rod, it allows us to dance, it allows us to do cool things on the court and dunking and, and all the rest of it. However, when we have to lift or explode, that spine has to be stiffened to stop it from collapsing. So the muscles of the core form a very clever guide wire system that is tuned. And if you get that tuning right, the spine now, for that instant in time, becomes rigid and load-bearing. And failure to have sufficient motor control and innate horsepower in all of that uh, will cause uh, an outright injury. We've measured it. We've seen case studies that that, no question, Now, the third element of course stability is when you get, and I didn't bring any models to prepare, but I just happened to have this model on my desk. So there is a sacrum, an L5, and an L4. Let's say this joint was damaged a little bit. I'm going to bend the spine. Do you see the huge amount of movement that's taking place at this joint, but not at this one? Mm -hmm. So that has lost its stiffness, and stiffness is the correlate of stability. So you see now, without control, that loss of stiffness is creating micro movements. That is creating pain. Now, here's the curious thing about getting a micro movement and a shot of pain. The brain has a fuse point. And when it feels that shot of pain, it stops the neural drive. It steals your strength. It takes your breath away. Yes. So you can imagine it damaged your knee, you get a shot of pain, your leg buckles. 
This is what happens to uncorked layers. So they might be breathing. They, they, they haven't got sufficient stability around that spine gives a micro movement, the brain shuts it down. Jack O'Neill will break them into two. So at that point, we teach them breathe behind the shield. So with a basketball player, for example, who they tend to be on the taller end of the, uh, the height population, we'll put them in a side bridge and they breathe through first lips, locking the core muscles and maintaining and engineering out the microbiome. It puts the diaphragm on steroids. It really propels the diaphragm to be the athlete now that we're telling here. So the yoga belly breathing and stuff like that, it doesn't transfer on the MBA core. I'm not saying it's useless. It, it, it's, it just happens to be the wrong tool for the basketball player to, to transfer on the court. So there's the third element. See, this ain't easy stuff. You have to be able to figure it out what is the Part that isn't working for that particular athlete. But again, the assessment will reveal this, and we've got tools that are very specific to uh, giving you a tool for that last of the, the first lift screen or bringing behind the shield. So uh, that is the second part of your question. <laughs> now I'll try and answer the first part. So, what is it? What are the parts of the body? That's more difficult to answer because it's contextual. I just gave you three examples of core stability and athleticism, and one crossed the shoulder joint and had to do with breathing. And then our body is a articulated linkage with muscles, which are force and stiffness actuators that live inside a bag. The bag is fascia. What fascia does is it creates a super stiffness throughout the body. Now, what, what, what do I mean by a composite supermaterial? If you take a board of, of maple, oh, we're out in BC, let's take a piece of redwood uh, cedar. Now, we take that redwood cedar and it weighs so much and it's a certain dimension. Now we measure its strength, where it breaks, and its stiffness. Okay, now we cut the cedar plank into veneers and we glue the veneers back together with a cross plank. So we cross it this way, the next layer this way. And then we measure its strength and its stiffness. And we get a super strength and a super stiffness. So when we create a, all right, I've just created a bracing. We now create a super stiffness. We've engineered out the rope in the spine. And so much less effort now, we've created a better stone to hammer and you get a better uh, dunk uh, and fly through the air uh, as an example. So what's the core? Man, it's the muscle. It's the fascia. The fascia crosses my hips and goes all the way down my leg. If I want to stretch my psoas muscle on this side, I'm going to push this arm up overhead. And then as I'm stretching, I'm going to wind my hand. And a person who has a fascial link and an anterior chain down the psoas, you can palpate the psoas tendon and you'll feel Oh, I'm winding up the tendon. No, I never moved the tendon. So the, the core in that case goes all the way to the wrist. So yeah. you see how yeah. when you start getting into the science, 
it is oh you got me excited Harrison. <laughs> <laughs> i can i can tell and i can tell this is something that we you could probably talk about forever and you probably have before i, I, I could write a book about it <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly well uh you know it is interesting so it's funny you mentioned the one thing is you, you know you said when uh, it sends the signal to the brain and i was laughing because i'm like man have i felt that that feeling before and i just it's you know I know it all too well, um, but yeah, the core itself, it, again, and this is why I, when I asked the question, I knew it was a complicated answer. The funny thing is I did not suspect it was as complicated as it, as it is. Um, you know, you know, don't let that scare you. <laughs> the, the, the appropriate assessment with the right training and background will still lead you to the right intervention. Mm -hmm. you, and the conditioning coach, can engineer or program really aggressive in that player. And uh, then the art of coaching takes over. Can you cue that player? And, uh, you know, I haven't done a study on basketball players, but I've done a study on police officers, firefighters, uh, on how to cue. So um, we, we took the Pensacola Fire Department down the floor and uh, we trained them with different styles of coaching. And, uh, you know, I go into a gym and I just see a coach uh, yelling at the, at, the, at the player, you know, five more reps. Uh, yeah. You know, that yeah. kind of coaching style. And there's no question the player uh, gets fitter, for sure. But then uh, the, the other group, we used Exos coaches. Do you, do you remember Athletes Performance? Or they're now called Exos. In Mark Verstegen's group down out of Arizona. Uh, we've worked with them for a lot of years and uh, they're, they're really trained cleverly in corrective exercise and giving appropriate cues and, and whatnot. Anyway, um, what we did was that, that group who were trained in that style of expert coaching also got fitter. But then we measured the firefighters before the study on fire grounding tests, you know, chopping a hole in a, in a burning roof, which would be a chop packing, um, uh, advancing a loaded fire hose, piking open an overhead elevator door. These are all real firefighter tasks, pulling a, a, a fire hose in. It's called the hose pull. Um, and then uh, we also measured them exiting the study. But we never trained firefighting tasks. All we did was coach by yelling at them to try harder or by coaching in this style that I'm trying to describe. What we're talking about now is transference. Very critical. How do you know what you're doing in the training room is going to transfer onto the basketball? Well, I can tell you in the firefighting game, we never trained firefighting tasks. But when we measured the firefighters going back to the fire ground and we remeasured those fire ground tasks, those who were coached in the principles of here is a way to optimize spine performance, engineer out those little triggers, don't create the fuse box to shut it down. Um, and then uh, and you do that with spine posture and appropriate stiffness, they perform the fire ground activities with less spine sticks their knees were less likely to go into valgus, which we know, at least in NCAA basketball players, is the most potent predictor of ACL injury in the knee. Same with firefighters. But the ones who were just trained by coaches to try harder, 
They got more horsepower, they became fitter, and they had worse movement patterns when they went back to the fire ground. So we, we did a few studies like that. Another one on stretching to see, do you change movement behavior with the stretching program? The answer is, we didn't change their movement. We gave them more range of motion, but they didn't change their movement until they were taught to move differently. You see what I mean? And, uh, you know, all of these things are uh, what we think about with uh, cohorts of uh, basketball players. Can I say something? You're going to appreciate this because this flash just came into my brain. Uh, I remember talking with uh, Doug Richards, who is the chief of sports medicine at the University of Toronto, and Doug's worked with our Olympic programs for years, and he's dealt with all kinds of Olympic athletes, but he was also the medical director of the Toronto Raptors. I said for a long time, Doug, with all your experience and all the exposure you've had to athletes, who are the best well-rounded athletes? That's what he said. I don't know. I mean, Come on, guess. Well, basketball players? Of course. <laughs> Thought it was a trick question. No, isn't isn't that? Yeah, he said, you know, for for people who can do everything, um, we did a study at Northeastern University, and, and my colleague there was Art Horn, who was the uh, strength coach of the Northeastern basketball team. We studied them for two years, and we made measures of different athletic variables, and then we measured how many games did you play without using a finger injury? How many head back injury? Uh, how many baskets did you get? How many free throws did you get? How many three-pointers outside the zone did you get? And all this kind of stuff. So some performance and resilience variables. And then we saw what physicality best predicts who scores in, in NCAA basketball. And you'd be kind of surprised at what, what some of those variables were. You, you know, the NHL has a the preseason combine yep. where they players all trying to get a high score. The NFL is notorious for the NFL combine. Uh, how many times can you bench press 225 pounds? Do you know the guy who owns the, the highest 225-pound combine score never made the NFL? Now, what's the transference there? What does that tell exactly. you? So when you look at some of the NFL tests they're hardly related to performance and resilience but the nba has it right which is so curious the nba when we studied the tests they really were predictive in other words the nba changing lane cross shuttle run whatever that thing's called that really predicts good performance and as we found out i'd rather have a good lateral shuffle performance than a fast sprint in the nba doesn't that make sense? Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. They, 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 they got it right. Yeah. I think we can really improve on it. Yeah. But uh, I, I just thought you might find that interesting. So no, I do. I do. I find it interesting. It's a little popcorn popping in my head. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting because, uh, you know, obviously I'm a big NBA fan and they do talk about the, the comp, like, I don't think it's called the combine it's an NFL term however they do all the testing and one of the ones a uh, few that stand out that people make note of um, in the basketball world so not specifically the trainers is obviously vertical leap I mean everyone talks about that it is basketball but the more interesting one that I find more interesting is they do measure wingspan 
um, of athletes and they and I think I'm almost positive they there's something that they measure with um, hand um, like the, I don't know what what it would be the spreading of the hand or the size so they, they do take into account these things but I, but again I've never actually heard um, if they could say that you know most of the athletes that have larger wingspans uh, that are larger than their height for example are end up being better NBA players or not but so this one that you brought up is very interesting because um, uh, I'm curious outside of you know for example the shuttling the shuffling did you have you heard anything else around wingspan or, or hand uh, size uh, that you can oh, absolutely. yeah absolutely um, what's that book my wife's a sports psychologist so between the two of us we have <laughs> what's the one with written by the sports illustrated uh, author or writer who uh, he wrote uh, the, the book yeah what book is that book called? Uh, anyway. is that the 10,000 hours one you know talking was it Malcolm oh, Adwell? no, no. Uh, let, let me create athletes great. But anyway, he, he brought up the case that uh, wingspan actually predicts uh, better than jump height or rebound ability. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that makes that makes sense. I mean, most of, most of you know, when you're on the basketball court, it's position. Yes. And then if you have longer arms and I have more better position than you, then I'm probably going to get, I don't care how high you can jump. I'm, I'm going to be closer to that ball off, off the top. It's going to be easier for me to get to it, which yeah, makes our, sense. Our data show wingspan plus your bench press ability actually cleaned out your space for rebounds. Uh, yeah. And that, that makes perfect sense. I'm not going to like this next one. Let me hear it. You're going to get a better short game. In other words, more uh, baskets right around the rebound zone. Yep. Sorry, if, if so, you're going to get more rebounds if you're what now? You have weaker hands. Weaker hands. Yeah. So, I, I'm assuming, and everyone that we discussed this with, we are assuming that it's a finesse game at that point. Yes, that's what I would assume when yeah. you tell me that. Uh, now that is, is pure conjecture at this point. Huh. Interesting. That's interesting. I mean, I, I, I do find that kind of stuff uh, very interesting where it seems intuitive, like, oh, well, if you have stronger hands, I'm going to be better at, you know, finish around the basket, for example. But then, you know, research says otherwise, but then you justify that reason. Well, it must be because of this. So that makes sense. It's for the finesse. So, I mean, that, that's the beauty of a lot of uh, research is it can clarify things for you, but sometimes, I mean, it can make things maybe more unclear or it challenges the common uh, belief of something and people don't accept it. And you see, and I'm sure you've seen a lot of that uh, in your studies where you say, well, this is what we've found. And, and, and we've actually proven it as well in the real world, but, uh, but uh, yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, uh, first Miguel, I, I appreciate your time. I do, uh, you know, I want to kind of wrap this up and I, I have a kind of a funny question to ask you. So I hope you have a, a, an, an imagination a little bit here. So it's, it, it goes something, something like this. So if you had around, you know, call it 10 minutes, three minutes, or however long you would need, but it's a short period of time, let's say no more than 10 minutes, and you could literally educate every basketball player in the world, so from professional levels all the way down to youth, on the most effective way to avoid future, future back injuries, you know, what would you teach them? What would be the one? It's only one thing. You can't say this, this, this. It's just like this is going to be the one thing that'll at least get them, you know, to to, to mitigate it as much as possible. You created an impossible task. <laughs> well, that's a good question, then, right? <laughs> well, you have because it doesn't recognize 
athletes are different. We've measured a lot of top athletes. So let me give you a basketball example. Okay. Let's take a uh, power forward, 6'11". Uh, and then let's take another 6'11 player who comes from uh, Central Europe. Let's say they're Croatian. Okay. Now, they will have typically big calves, very heavy legs, yes. and measurable jump start. They are knee jumpers. In other words, they are vertical jumpers, two feet on the ground. The knees bend deeply. They extend the knees, extend the toes, use those powerful legs to get a vertical jump. Measure more of a player who's longer in the leg, shorter in the body. They are a hip jumper. Totally different. So the hips explode, hitting that core. And you don't really need much leg muscle, so to speak, because it's a hip hinge and usually two steps just for hell that one. So there's an example where you, you see now, are you going to do toe raises with the long legged player or might you do toe raises with the shorter, heavier leg player? You, you see what I mean? Two different tools, two totally different mechanisms. You'll ruin one player with the same task. For sure. We took, uh, not in the, we took volleyball teams. We, did, we repeated this study twice. And the coaches gave us the task. We want you to increase the vertical jump of our volleyball players. There you go, son. Get to it. <laughs> we want two inches or more with every player. So as most strength coaches would do, we chose a squat training program. And I forget the duration, whether it was eight weeks or two months or whatever it was. I'm sorry, I forget. But anyway, uh, at the end of the study, after doing it twice, we got exactly the same answer. Half of the team increased their vertical jump. 30, 34% of the players ruined their vertical jump. And about 15% made no difference. So you had super responders, you had negative responders, and a few it didn't make any difference. And then I learned to ask two questions. And the first question that I asked the players, I said, are you naturally quick, or you're naturally strong? If you're naturally quick, you go over there. If you're naturally strong, you go over there. Now, Guess which one of those subgroups increased their vertical jump with squat training program? Well, I would imagine it would be the, the naturally quick people. Yes, exactly. So they had the neurology of turning muscle on and off quickly. They had better hammers. So if you have a quick neurology and you add strength, you get a higher vertical jump. But when a muscle contracts, it creates force and stiffness. So if you're already strong, and you add more strength without the neurology, you become slower. And those are the negative responses. So do you see do you see why your question that you gave me was impossible? Absolutely. But Absolutely. I just gave you an assessment to make it possible. <laughs> the next question I learned to do is more of a thrill. I'd get the team and I'd say, would you arrange yourself in a standing order, tallest to shortest? Good. One, two, three, four, name off and away you go. Okay, now bring out a bench. Everyone sits on the bench. Now arrange your sitting thing. So what I just did was I got body length to leg length ratio. Mm -hmm. And the ones with shorter legs will do better with the squat because mm -hmm. they're more vertical, they get more out of the leg to draw. Whereas the longer leg, shorter body gets more out of the hip. 
that acts what you know, holistic. You, you see what I mean? Hammer hitting the stone. That's a totally different jump mechanical. So there's, uh, again, simple tests that will really hone you in on here's something that every basketball player should know I can't do it, but I can at least subcategorize like that. But now that you've given me a few seconds to think about it, I would say become a master of the craft. If you're a basketball player and you really want to make it, then bloody well work at it. 24-7, you should be a basketball player. 24-7, conducting your life to create training capacity. 24-7, to create a better machine, a better athlete. So that's sometimes when I see athletes throw it away. And, and, and not intentionally and not through undiscipline. They throw it away because of lack of knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, no, I, I like I like that answer. And I think it is a great way to, to, to wrap up because in, in, in so many words, you essentially said that not one athlete, not one human is, is specifically the same. So you cannot prescribe uh, the same thing to get the same result. If I want to jump high or, or, or taking it back even to, to back to back injuries or back issues, um, making sure you understand what are the pain triggers, right? That's going to be different from person to person. And I think, um, you know, one, one thing in, that you that you said as well is to do it 24 seven. So if you're passionate about something and you want to achieve these goals, just to go all in. And I, I always bring it back to, um, you know, looking at now that I'm an everyday person, I'm no longer an elite, elite athlete, but I still train every single day. I'm still in the gym doing athletic type things every single day. However, I do spend a lot of my day doing normal things as well. And I think that's, that can be said for athletes. Um, looking at something like, um, uh, Applying what you said and, and saying, you know, if you're doing something 24 hours a day and you're formulating your life around achieving certain goals, uh, you do have to consider everything you're doing. So, you know, and that's why I kind of started to bring the conversation full circle. I asked you about spine hygiene because understanding that idea has, has truly changed my life because it got me out of the pain, right? Because I, I don't do little things like you, you know, mentioned the way I tie my shoes, the way I sit. The way I even stand, I'm now aware of those things. And I think for older athletes or, you know, uh, people who have experienced back pain, I think that's something that maybe they can incorporate into their understanding. If it's, some, it's something simple um, and that might help them uh, potentially achieve some of their goals, or I should say, avoid them from being derailed uh, because of pain uh, in the back, at least. Thank you for inspiring. <laughs> that, that was really thoughtful eloquent song well, I, you know I appreciate the time uh, Professor McGill I more than your time I appreciate uh, your work um, because like I said it's something that has helped me I've been uh, I've, I've probably uh, helped you sell maybe six or seven books that I've told people they had to buy and then I got mad at them when they didn't read it when they told me I mean you'll you'll like this though one of them actually passed it on to uh, uh, one of their physiotherapists so I said okay that's fine but you have, you should read the book yourself um, so I appreciate uh, your work and I know you've helped many people um, I hope uh, to do the same through conversations like this so thank you uh, thank you very very much for uh, taking the time uh, to talk with me uh, Darcy I've really enjoyed this I've really enjoyed speaking with you thank you very much and, and thank you for all that you do I appreciate you. Okay, take care.